Hello everyone and welcome to the 370 sorry 69th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your dungeon master host Mason, joined by my brave adventurer co-host Abe. Abe, how you doing? Um I'm ready to venture into a dungeon or two. Abe, you got a I big smile on your face today for the video version of the podcast. You've just been gleaming at me the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm just excited to be here, man. I, I made a character sheet. You know, I, I made all these picks. I'm ready to ready to let some takes fly. <laughs> I'm glad to be happy about Yeah, so today we're going to be going over Forgotten Realms Adventures. The Forgotten Realms, whatever it's called. Abe, this is an actual thing that happened. So I, I went to a 4th of July gathering with some friends. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not trying to say anything, but, like, you know, normally people who, like, like magic a certain way kind of gather together, right? So, like, people that are spiky kind of gather. And that doesn't mean you won't have friends that are more Timmy's or Johnny's or whatever, you know, like that sort of thing. But normally birds of other flock together, right? And so I would say 99% of this gathering are people who have played a pro tour or do that sort of thing, you know? And... I told them as I was leaving, I was like, does anyone have an idea for a deck list? I need some for my article at Card Kingdom, which you can read this Thursday. I figured out some decks for it finally. But I was like, I need deck lists for this Forgotten Realms. And everyone except one person there didn't realize this was an actual standard set. They thought it was the thing <laughs> that was like the, we cross over with like Walking Dead. And they thought like, wait, this is real cards that we play with, not just Legacy and Modern? And I was like, yes, these are standard cards. So, yeah, if you didn't everywhere. know, <laughs> this is a standard legal set. I thought I should maybe tell listeners that. Kind of eye-opening. But, Abe, let's hop uh, right into it. Let's not dilly-dally on anything when it comes to that. If you want to support the show, you go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. And, of course, you can always check out our amazing sponsors at Oasis Games and Grey Viking Games. Great stuff on both of them. Oasis, you can get the physical cards you want in Grave. I can get the digital products you want. Make sure to check that out. If you want to pick up packs on the cheap, you can use code CCMTG at checkout to get 10% off there. That will help you build up your collection on Arena while you get ready for the paper release if you're in the States. Today we're doing the Pick 2 set review, though. This is our sort of way of doing it here on the Constructed Criticism. It's pretty different than most shows, so most shows are going to give you a top 10 list or do the whole entire set. What we like to do is we like to pick... Two cards per five categories. So you're still going to get 10 cards talked about like a normal podcast show. But instead of giving you 10 through one and you have to kind of figure out, does like number seven mean this? Like, I don't get it. Is nine actually a good card? Or does Godleap just think it's kind of cool? We, we skip all that, the hip and bahabs there. And our show, we kind of just tell you what we're thinking about the card. That way you kind of have an idea. And we're going to start off with sleepers here. So what uh, sleepers are are cards that people aren't really talking about that we think have a real shot to be a contender and standard. And Abe, I'll start things off here with Flame Skull. So Flame Skull is one red red for a creature skeleton with flying that can't be blocked, and it's a 3-1. And it has an ability. So just for the record, a bunch of cards in this set, if you haven't paid that much attention, have like keyword-looking things. They have keyword abilities. They're not actual things that persist over multiple cards for the most case. They're like one-offs. They're supposed to be thematic for D&D. So this card has an ability that's when Flame Skull dies, exile it. If you do exile the top card of your library until end of turn, you may play one of those cards. And so Flame Skull is a little interesting, Abe, right? Like it reads kind of weird, but basically what it says is if you kill the Flame Skull, 
right at the end of your turn or whatever, on your next turn, you exile a top card, you can play the Flame Skull again or that next card. And that makes the Flame Skull really hard to answer, right? Like, it, it replaces itself always with a better card or itself so you can keep digging. And I think specifically for Winota in current standard, this card looks to have a lot of promise. I mean, it's just going to always be a body for the Winota. So if your opponent's trying to do the classic beat Winota by killing all the things that trigger Winota plan, that won't work against this card. And while doing that, you actually dig towards the Winota. And then obviously for Mono Red decks, I think this card has a real chance of seeing play, especially post-rotation when we lose some some cards like Annex and things like that. Uh, and the three-drop slot cleans up a little bit. But what do you think of Flame Skull? I think this card actually could have been a hit and almost was on my list. Yeah, I think Flame Skull is, uh, you know, it, it's just a really powerful recursive threat. I like that, unlike some of the recursive threats we've seen in the past, and kind of a theme we'll probably get into a bit over the course of the set reviews, the, like, continued kind of powering down of standard. But, you know, Flame Skull uh, is a card where a 3-1 flyer that is going to attack every turn and, you know, you're not actually getting a whole card out of by blocking it and trading for it is... Uh, is is big game in a lot of games of standard and so it's it's a very annoying threat and if it's not gonna you know let's say you don't want to spend the three mana but you exile a land or something you can make sure you hit that land drop keep curving out and your flame skull has been like you know it, it, it's replaced itself in in dying and it's guaranteed to replace itself with a spell in some ways right like it's always gonna hit you another flame skull uh it, because that's just what the card does it always comes back so I think that's a that's a really solid one. I uh, I'm really interested to see like you know especially when we see rotation like how much of the current curves of the standard decks that are defined by Eldrain and Theros cards and whatever uh, you know like what the biggest empty holes in them are and and where the slots in. But I can definitely think that Flame Skull has a big shot considering Phoenix of Ash and Anax and Bonecrush Giant are all you know they're done after uh, the Innistrad set comes out after this one. So, Yeah, I think this card has a lot of potential. And it's kind of crazy. Um, one thing we've kind of noticed, and like you said, we're going to be mentioning a lot, is that this is a core set replacement, so it's kind of powering down. And they're kind of riding the ship from the Eldraine days, and we're kind of, looks like we're gearing up for a little bit more low-powered standard for maybe the next year or so. And so we're going to have a lot of cards that aren't as, like, wow-wow-wee as we've seen in the past. Um but this card seems very good to me, and it's like base rate isn't the worst ever. Dies to most things. It, seemingly Spikefield Hazard is like is its biggest enemy, but besides that, I think this card is just phenomenal. Um, and it is very surprising that I've seen zero people talk about Flame Skull, even with the classic "Can't wait for Bone Crusher to leave Omega Lull tweet." So uh, it's very very weird to me that Flame Skull has not seen any uh, any love when it comes to previews. Yeah, for sure. My second, so was your other sleeper? My other second, uh, it's the rest of the set, the Forgotten Realms. Um, you know, a lot of the cards <laughs> here. No, jokes aside, it's actually Fly. Uh, I have seen zero people talk about Fly, and I don't quite get it, but maybe I'm just a dreamer. Fly is an enchantment for blue aura that says whenever enchanted creature uh, attacks, I'm sorry, whenever enchanted deals combat damage, sorry, to a player, you venture into the dungeon, and this enchantment gives the creature Fly. So... Fly, aptly name, will make your creature fly, which is basically unblockable in the early turns, for being honest about how, you know, standard games of magic play, barring rogues. Uh, it hits them, and you venture into the dungeon. Venturing into the dungeon is a new mechanic that we have for this set, so I'm going to briefly describe it, 
But for you to really get the full picture, if you haven't seen this yet, I'm sorry, but you should probably go read the dungeons. If I tried to read them to you, it will actually be more likely confusion than anything. But venture into the dungeon basically means you'll go into this thing called a dungeon. There are three dungeons and only three dungeons in Magic as of right now. And you can venture into any of them. And then next time you venture, you move forward in the dungeon. And every time you move into a room, it ETBs the thing that's on the card. So like one of them's like scry, one's make a goblin, etc. You get the idea. And then you move through the dungeon. And when you get to the end, you get like a nice reward. And then you can venture into a new dungeon. So flying does that. There's one dungeon, Abe, that kind of makes us into a curious obsession. Where it's like, I believe the first mode is scry. Then you can put a plus one, plus one counter. Then you draw. And then the final mode, I think, is like get a treasures or something like that. It doesn't really matter. Basically, I see fly as like a curious obsession meets curiosity type thing for standard. And I think that that sort of thing is really powerful. And I think the reason that fly isn't seeing love right now is that venturing into the dungeon is being really viewed as only a, a limited mechanic. And I believe that for the most part it is, but I believe fly is one of the few exceptions where you'll actually move through a dungeon like that and it will occur you value. And you'll play a deck where you're kind of playing a fish game plan, kind of like we saw Autumn Burchett win with uh, MC1. And that's what you're going to accomplish. And that Fly does this for you. And it actually gives you a lot of versatility. And I think one of the interesting things about one of these fish decks typically is it to be built a very certain way. You got to have unblockable things, you got to have disenchantments, and you have to have things to protect it. And that's basically the whole deck. Because you're going to be drawing cards, you want to make sure that you're doing your game plan. The dungeon... While it might take a while to get some of the bigger things, you always get that. So it's like you always draw a goblin where you always, you know, get a plus one, plus one. And you kind of know what to expect and it makes it very easy to plan your turns out. I think that's very powerful. So I believe Fly is a real sleeper in the set. Yeah, I hadn't uh, actually, I like remembered reading the card and being like, oh, like this is just strictly better flight for us boomers out there who remember paying a single blue to just give a creature flying being enough. Mm -hmm. uh for your one blue mana but uh yeah like this this card now that i like think about it it does you know it it does enable this plan of my creature's going to be evasive i can protect it i can like push through some of these uh push through some of these dungeons that have like some really strong payoffs depending on how long i think i can protect myself and uh i think it might need more than just flight, but the parallels to Curious Obsession are pretty compelling. I hadn't really thought of it like that until you uh, until you brought it up just now. So, you know, certainly, certainly has potential if the format is susceptible to like the rest of what that deck does in having like a bunch of cheap threats and single single counter spells that take mid range decks full turns and stuff. Yep. Uh, yeah, seems seems really good. That's mine, Abe. What's your first sleeper? Uh, so my first sleeper is Monk of the Open Hand. And uh, I know that a lot of people probably glazed over this card as like the thing that you're supposed to get with uh, the new White Planeswalker, Grandmaster Flowers. Because um, one of its abilities is like plus one, search for a Monk of the Open Hand, reveal it, put it in your hand, and then shuffle your library. Uh, monk of the Open Hand is a 1-1 one, one for one uh, for a single white. And it has one of these uh, like keyword abilities, uh, Flurry of Blows, which says whenever you cast your second spell each turn, you put a plus one plus one counter on Monk in the open hand. So I think that this card is like actually very much the real deal in a low-to-the-ground white aggressive deck. 
And I think that, like, you know, if you have enough one drops, which historically the deck kind of hasn't had, or, uh, you know, has been more fixated on, like, playing Skyclave Apparition and Maul the Skyclaves, focusing more on having good two drops backed up by protecting one drops, if we can change that dynamic to playing more aggressively and just trying to attack every turn, um, Monk the Open Hand is actually really, really good. Like, it's very easy for me to see this being uh, like a wild Nacatl or uh, or bigger. Like like a 1-mana 2-2 two, two, or 3-3 three, three, uh, that you can play on turn 1 that scales pretty well in the mid to late game just because it sits there and grows uh, as long as you're firing all cylinders. It does hurt that you have to have two spells to cast. Like, you do have to play a lot of one drops to make Monk the Open Hand really good, but I think that if that kind of thing is good, then this is probably just the best white one drop in a lot of ways. Um, like, it, it's hard to say if it's better than um, than the one from Kaldheim that makes tokens, whose name I'm blank on. Ooh. I know what you mean, though. The 2-1 with Boast. Yeah. Oh, man. That's Selfless? No, that's the dog. Whatever. The people know. They're smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yelling but, at their but car. Between, yeah, exactly. Between all of the protection one drops, uh, that card, there's just... We're getting close to the density of Savannah Lions. You could play a Savannah Lions deck. Um, although we might be short a payoff or two. Um, this just definitely seems like one that's very, very strong, though. Uh, being able to have it grow to a 3-3 a three, three on turn 3 or beyond that uh, gives white the ability to to scale past. Like, the reason Luminarch Aspirin is so powerful is because you'll get, you know, if you get two or three counters out of it, you're getting such a huge, like, uh, bonus on your man investment for the card, and this is just the same thing, but you need to be a little more proactive to, a little more proactive to, uh, to enable it. 100%. I, I like it. I think, I think that's a, a great one. I don't have much to say because I think you kind of nailed it. Uh, so we'll just go on to my second one, which I think is probably one you'll be happy that I read it to you because my next one is Dragon Turtle. Do you think I don't know Dragon Turtle? All right. If you know Dragon Turtle so well, what's I believe it's tap? one blue, blue flash. Enter the battlefield tapped. Tap another thing. These things don't untap on the next untap step and it's like a five six it's like very big or something like that three, it's four. a three five flash for one blue blue yeah i think this card is really really solid i think it's like one of the more like i don't just one of the more castable dragons like this is a card that you can play to have game against uh have game against like you know other control decks with the flash threat you can play end of turn um it enables all of your dragon synergy cards there are a handful of in the set um it's very good against the aggressive decks and that you can you know flash it in and tap down their one big thing it, it kind of like answers it for a couple turns gives you time and then a three five body like five toughness in the absence of uh of something like love struck beast in in a few uh months is like a huge number to think about even so uh yeah I, I think this card has a lot of potential especially as i've seen more dragon cards be previewed and more cards that care about dragons as a creature type like the more you are going to want to put dragons in your deck the more the dragon turtle is going to be a card that interests you and i think that it just has a lot of potential cards with flash are always just better than they look because you can get so much value out of them. It does suck that it comes to play tapped because it 
kind of like forecasts what the body's doing. But as you know, a decent ability or even just like an end of turn, like, oh, we both left up our counter spells. I'll just deploy the first threat and we can play the game like this in the control mirror. Like that is such a powerful effect to have access to uh, that if it's good enough in the other matchups is totally worth playing. I agree with everything you said, but you left out one very important thing. Do you know what you forgot? What's that? It's kind of embarrassing. I'll give you one second. You didn't give me my props for knowing what Dragon Turtle was. What are you doing, you No, know, You know what, I Mason? knew Dragon Turtle. I, I knew Dragon Turtle. What, what, where's my you props? Did, you did know Dragon if Turtle. If you watched the video version, I was fist pumping the entire time that he was talking. <laughs> That's. You know what? I, I didn't even really doubt you. I just wanted wow. to set you up for a dub. Holy you know? My heart. It's so big. <laughs> <laughs> it grew two times at that rate. Yeah, I think Dragon Turtle's quite good. Uh, you know, I, I've read the spoiler five or six times now, trying to get ideas for stuff and do things. And Dragon Turtle jumped out to me as well as a card that's like, wow, there's something to having this many stats. And I wonder if it'd be like insane without entering the battlefield tap. Like maybe, yeah. maybe close to If it didn't to have to lock itself down. Yeah. Like it's pretty gross. Like <laughs> it's just a three, five flash for three is just so much. The fact that, you can't opt out of tapping itself down is the real drawback to the card. But, you know, a lot of the times if you're playing this card to gain time, that's that's enough, especially with how things currently are. Like, I, I could see this being a card that, you know, a, any sort of deck that fly is good in, this being good in, kind of being like your Tempest Gin, your card that's, like, extremely efficient, but also, you know, instead of having to cancel this, you know dumb idiot of stats you, your opponent just put on the table you just cast this tap it down and then you can like bounce it later or whatever you re you ready for a deep cut i think pioneer i think there's a, some of the dragon power cards draconic or solar scorn i think that there's enough of those in this set too and cheap dragons there's i think a tier two dragon deck minimum minimum Man, i wasn't even going to talk about pioneer until we got the hits so i'm glad that you brought it up but <laughs> i hadn't even thought of that there are a lot of good dragon cards that the dragon turtle could enable. That's true. I've got big big hopes for my boy, the dragon turtle. <laughs> big DT. Let's move on to flavor. So every set review, we like to have one that's kind of unique for the set. This time, it's flavor. It cannot be undersold that while Forgotten Realms might be a low power set, it is a high win on flavor and evocativeness. And while I have not played much D&D, Fun fact, I recently tried to play D&D, &D and I died on the first thing. I just got knocked out, rolled a one or whatever on the survival thing, Abe, and died. I was just Dobbs. That's what it'd be like, man. Sometimes you get mana screwed in D&D. &D. <laughs> I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, without that, though, there are just so many evocative and sweet and flavorful cards that we just wanted to have a moment to kind of shout those out, even if it's briefly here. My, my first is you see a guard approach, and that one really encompasses all of these, like, you cast a spell that's a thing you'd be doing in D&D, &D, and then it gives you kind of two generic D&D &D choices. And I know some people think that that's actually counter D&D &D because it's like D&D &D is about doing whatever. But that's, I think, maybe the beauty of that game is you think you can do whatever, but really there's a couple options you can do. And if you're really smart, you can maybe do something crazy, but most people are going to like hide from the guard or knock the guard out. That's what most people will do. And so I, I think you see a guard approach, or a guard approaches um, is a great example of that with giving either Hexproof or tapping a creature. I think that flavor of hiding or, you know, knocking the guard out so you can get through, like, tapping a creature down is one of the best I've seen on the Magic card. 
maybe ever. It reminds me of Gravecrawler when it comes to like how much it resonates and it's just so clear and so clean to me. And I, I think Gravecrawler is one of the best examples of that of all time. So, Yeah, I, I really like all of these kind of designs. It was hard for me to not put one on the list, but there were like, there, there's also so cool, like you read them and, you know, I've, I've played a very minimal amount of D&D, like since I played a bit when I was like, you know, 10 or 11 with some family friends growing up over the summers and we'd like roll up characters and play like three or four sessions and then never touch them again. But, you know, like, oh, there's like, you hear a sound in the darkness, like, what are you going to do? And it's like, oh, I don't know, should I like do this or that? It's kind of, it just makes you feel almost like you're in, like, like I know that at pre-release, you know, if you're able to go to one, there's going to be someone there who's like taking a lot of pleasure in like reading out the scenario that they're painting with their card. And that's because the card is just so evocative. I think, I think there are so many things in this set that are just huge flavor home runs for, for D and D, even as people who like, I don't know anything about the lore either. Like all the legendary creatures were lost on me, but these things really like, you know, hit home for me and what I expected out of like D and D and what makes it really sick. So yeah, I think it's a big, like nod to how good these are that we get it right like me with barely any you with minimal experience in this and it's like oh i get it i understand like how that is or how that would work or why that's so cool and like some of the stories they tell where it's like you cross a river you see the guard approach you find the villainous wealth or whatever like the villain's lair like that's a story they, they told you a story with cards that's not something that's very easy to do and i think the coolest part of this is that, that works a couple ways right like you cross over there, you encounter some goblins, you find the villain's lair. Like they tie together pretty seamlessly. Uh, and I think that's really cool. I think that's really amazing. And I, I think they're great. And I, I've heard a lot of hate for these cards from other people saying they're not very evocative. And I don't know, to me, as like a, a pleb, Timmy, D&D, whatever, newbie, <laughs> they seem insanely yeah. good. And uh, my hardcore D&D friends I know love them. So maybe that's just the in-betweeners. The... The Ethanim heroes of D&D, if you would. My other one is plus two mace. Uh, I love plus two mace. <laughs> I remember talking to you about plus two mace when it was preview, being like, you seen this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's great. I think you know exactly what the card's going to do. I know what it's going to do without even knowing it. Like, like Yeah, we don't the- even have to tell anyone listening to the podcast to know that plus two mace gives your creature plus two plus two. Like, yeah. that's, just, that's just obvious. Everyone knew that from the from the jump it's a plus two mate yeah it, it's just like duh like and it's so cool and i think it does a great job of like being a one-off that's like a call out to that thing in D D, or like oh your mace gives you plus two or whatever you know i think that's so cool and i i love it i think it's great and i don't care there's a plus sign in a magic card cool whatever names are a limiting factor that's all i got yeah no, I think those are great ones. Those are definitely, like, you highlighted the thing that I think is most flavorful that I also have loved throughout this is is seeing some of these split cards turn, like, you know, choose one core set commons into cards that actually, like, mean something to someone. And uh, and a card that turns, you know, core set junky equipment <laughs> into a card that means something to someone, both of which are awesome. Uh, personally, my flavor picks were... Uh, were not any of those though, because I figured you might, uh, you might hit the the ones I consider gold for me. But I chose treasure chest, which is uh, you know, everyone knows there's treasure and it comes in chests, 
and it's a three-man artifact where you can pay four and sacrifice treasure chest, roll a d20, which if you haven't been paying attention to any of the previews, there's uh, not a ton, but quite a few uh, cards that have you roll a d20 and then have an outcome on them. Uh, this is, I think, the only one with four outcomes, uh, and they are, if you roll a one, you are trapped, and so you lose three life. If you roll between a two and a nine, your treasure chest has five treasure tokens in it. If you roll between a 10 and a 19, you gain three life and draw three cards. So you have more than just treasure in your treasure chest. And if you hit that natural 20, you get to search for a card. And if it's an artifact, you just put it onto the battlefield. And otherwise, you just put it in your hand. So just the range from, like, you know, like from a bad outcome. Like, it's the classic D&D card. Like, I feel like this is one that, if they, like, ever show us the file for how they did this, is one that probably had so little, like, change from it in concept, right? Like, it's a card where you get your prize and you don't know what it is until you open it, and you gotta roll the dice to find out. Like, your loot table is, if you roll a one, it's garbage, because there's a trap on it. You know, if you roll low, there's nothing that great, and if you roll big, it's it's exciting. And, and I think that, like, that, to me, is a pretty, like, epitome of D&D, where, you know, you, like, finish your session, you're, like, dividing up the loot, and, like, Dungeon Master's, like, rolling dice behind there and starts telling you about the crazy stuff you get, and it's just exciting. I think that, you know, there's not really a better implementation to me of rolling a d20 and having an outcome affect your game but you know with it being one powerful effect on one card one time uh it, it really like evokes the flavor to me yeah I, I love that card um i think it's great i actually think that card has like a weird chance of maybe being, being like a karn cyborg card in historic as well which is kind of funny but i, I love it and abe i love that you didn't talk about the dice rolling and magic thing because that means I get to do it for two seconds. Get over yourself. All right, we can move on. Um, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, my next card is Critical Hit. <laughs> I'm so mad about the dice rolling people. I'm so... Can I talk about it for like two more seconds, please? Or tell me now. Yeah, your yeah, choice. yeah. All right. No, no, go go for it, man. Like, right. I'm, I'm, I'm really with you on it, too. I think that people like are so afraid of variance in their games when they just are so... Otherwise, they have to be blind to all the variance in the games they play if they're upset about rolling a die in addition to what's going on. Do you like... Elvis Rejuvenator. These cards are very similar. Do you like Collected Company? These cards are very similar. Do you believe that when we tell people it's chess plus poker, that the chess part is a good description for what we actually do? Like, do you actually actually think the chess is the best analogy? Or do you think that's the most readily available analogy that most people will get? Do you think we chose the two broadest things that are the similarest? I believe the answer is that chess plus poker is something that we can tell people who don't get magic and then they understand the general idea it's not actually that much of chess it's not like your game has zero variance in it or anything like that and your game has so much variance from drawing your cards from when you shuffled your deck to like to the way some of the cards even work like we just said with that like the uh the random effects like elvis rejuvenator collecting company which are loved cards by lots of players before we even get into like just the plethora of cyborg cards and whatever poker plus chess is a bad analogy. If you want to be correct about magic, it's a great one for someone who doesn't get it. Stop thinking we're playing chess. We can move on now. Yeah. So anyway, uh, no, I, I think it's drives me up the wall. <laughs> the same thing. The same thing happens. All I remember reading like when Hearthstone started doing, uh, 
like they have like piloted shredder which have like a random two drop like come out of it and it's like yeah like sometimes the two drop is millhouse mana storm and sometimes it's doomsayer and it blows up the board but like you know that's what makes the card more exciting than just something that when it dies leaves around a you know average in that game like average two three or three two body chosen at random you know it's like that's just not what makes games exciting or interesting and when it's not done in a really offensive egregious way you know introducing a little more variance and a little more upside to cards uh especially for you know such a flavorful reason and for uh for the D set of all things like the five percent of the time or whatever that store that you roll a 20 that story's that card is going to generate a story that you're going to tell your friends. And that's like such a win for any given card that, especially for any given like random common that you lose to it pre-release or playing draft on magic arena or whatever. Like just think about what it's like to be on the other side of the table when someone rolls that 20 and like, because it's not actually dominating the game, it's that the spell was able to do more than it was asked of, you know, and like went above and beyond that that card is like, going to be good and going to be a card that you even remember so you know also embrace embrace some variance yeah. yeah yeah like i think an example of like why this doesn't even almost matter is like the blue one that's like unsummon aether gust and like super aether gust or something like that where like you choose it's gain control of it it's getting yeah it's gaining control sorry so in a lot of situations not all of them there are obviously situations where like it very much matters you're to 20 but a lot of the time unsummoning their thing and attacking them would be game deciding regardless of if I got their creature or not, or it went on top or bottom or not. You know what I mean? Like it, it's not like a lot of the times you clear the way and you kill them. Like the thing's still happening the same, just the way that you won was slightly different. And it has like this veil of like, Oh, it was random. And Oh, look at this cool experience. It's just kind of like a veil that tricked you. Like it didn't actually yeah. matter. There are some times where it will matter. There's some these clogged, these clogged board states and you're like, I'm targeting your dragon. I gotta roll a twenty, you know, and that's so sick that that happens. That is so sick. <laughs> yeah, I think that stuff's awesome. So anyway, critical hit. Back to the back to the flavor wins. This is another card that says you know rolling dice on it, but a little different. Target creature gains double strike until a turn for one and a red, which is already you know like fine. We saw uh, Unleashed Fury do a similar effect uh, be played through through that standard with like the the dragon deck soon there's a chance this card gets played um or is just a decent combat trick but when you roll a natural 20 on any any dice roll that you have to do for the game you return critical hit from your graveyard to your hand which is awesome like five percent of the time you get to redraw this like marginal but like strong combat trick and the card is just like super on flavor of like you know, you literally just roll a natural 20, and so you just critical hit the thing that you're fighting in combat in D&D, like, and, and every time you roll that 20, it's just a critical hit, like, that's what it means. That's just so perfect. Like, I don't know, I don't know how else to describe it other than perfect. It literally, like, you know, you're dealing, you know, you're dealing twice as much damage, you're rolling, you're rolling twice as many dice for your damage, effectively, if we we're talking about a game of D&D, like, you're, you, you, you did it. You did the thing. You rolled the big number and the big thing happened. And the big thing happening for this card being you get to do it again um, on top of the experience of rolling a 20 on whatever card it was. Uh, just really... It, it just really seems like a win. Just a big flavor win. 
I, I love this card. I, I was going to actually have it in mind, but I remembered plus two mace, and I was afraid plus two mace wouldn't make your list if I put critical hit down. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust Abe to get that critical, and you nailed it. Natural 20. Also, I've got to say it one more time. How different is this card if it says when a skeleton enters the battlefield, return it to your hand? Like, how many percentage of the time do you have a skeleton? It's like maybe 5% of the time? How different yeah, is that from 20? I don't know. It's less likely to happen than having a creature type. And there have been lots of versions of this card that come back from your graveyard when you play a creature type. Ah, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that was great. Uh, let's go on to our favorites. So these are some of our cards that we really like in the set. We're going to round out the last two categories with really powerful cards, hopefully, when it comes to standard and other formats. But these are some of our cards that we really like. Maybe they're strong, maybe they're not. We'll kind of let you know as we go. I believe this first one has such an insanely high ceiling, and I love what it tries to get us to do. And I think there's maybe a real chance. This Volo, the Guide of the Monsters. It's two blue-green for a legendary creature, Human Wizard, 3-2. That says, whenever you cast a creature spell that does not share a creature type with a creature you control or... A creature that's in your graveyard, copy that spell. That spell then has a token version of itself. So, for example, if we had no dogs in the battlefield and no dogs in the graveyard and we cast Selfless Savior, we get a token copy of Selfless Savior. What am I supposed to do with Voyo? How do I build my decks with Voyo in mind? Or Volo, sorry, my bad. How do I build with Volo in mind? Like, how, how do I do this thing? I, I don't know. Yeah, how many dogs do I play in my Volo deck? Yeah, how many selfless? Do I play three? Because I want to like I want to always draw one. I don't want the second one. It's really bad. How many? Do I like play that? rest in peace so that I can? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Seriously, rest in peace <laughs> fixes a lot of the problems. So does having like Tormont's crypt in your deck, or um, you know, getting soul guided lantern matters a lot, right? Like or scavenging using things like that. Exactly. Eating creatures in your yard to. And Scoots is a great one to copy. Stuff. Yeah, right? and you know, I think this sort of card sparks like this conversation we're having right now is a great example of it sparking a lot of ideas and i'm sure there's something eventually we can do where if we have a creature and we cast it twice it's almost win the game but that's so cool still like we get to do this thing it's on a three two you have to protect it it asks a lot of you and you probably have to play it on the same time you play that thing which turns into like a six drop and i don't know this card is just super cool and i think it has the real potential to be really strong i assume this card is good in historic or pioneer i have not taken the time to look at it but I assume it's busted. The last time I played Pioneer, I played an Enigmatic Incarnation deck through a challenge. And okay. if I can play Enigmatic Incarnation, I imagine I could play a Volo deck. Possibly. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if, if that's something I can try to do, I'm, I'm sure Volo has potential. And, you know, maybe there's something ridiculously broken and unfair you can do with Volo. At the very least, it's a card that, you know, you read it and... There's a bajillion possibilities for how you could build a deck that uses Volo well. Um, and there's no really wrong answer on any level. Like, you could... Every time you draft that card, everything gets more interesting. Every time you, you know... If you build your commander deck around that card, you can, like, choose to make sure there's no overlap, and that's really cool. It's just, like, you know... And, and the spikier implications of copying a creature, like, literally getting two creatures for the price of one, is, uh, is very large. So... If you went, like selfless savior before this play this protect it or maybe you have like an alcia to protect it and then you gold span dragon like whew, that's a lot of colors it's a lot of mana <laughs> that but, is you know like you but you can do th like, there are other there are similar you know analogs to that then you, you make do. those treasures you use the treasures to cast your skyclave uh, apparition which yeah, is a, exactly it's a core what you get spirit. two of <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, who knows, man? You could you could do anything. I'm thinking like in definitely there's gonna be some arena cube that I'm gonna draft where I'm gonna try to curve Volo into Thrag Tusk and it's gonna be the most fun thing for everyone involved, especially me and my two Thrag Tusks. <laughs> and their two <laughs> you know? they'll bring along. Yeah. Yep. So I love Volo. My other one is the Book of Exalted Deeds, which I don't know if how much you've looked in this A, but actually this card's gonna be strong too, and specifically historic, which is kind of funny. But the Book of Exalted Deeds is white, white, white for a legendary artifact. It has the beginning of your end step. If you gain three more life this turn, create a 3-3 white angel creature token with flying. And then it has white, 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 tap, exile the Book of Exalted Deeds. And you put an enlightened counter on target angel. It gains, you can't lose the game and your opponents can't win the game. Activate only as a sorcery. So the Book of Exalted Deeds works great in the Bant green-white angel deck. And Historic, that's been kind of a Tier 2 player the whole time. We actually saw someone bring it to the split weekend this last time around. And the thing that I like most about this Abe is that triggering the 3 life, very easy to do. It's going to make a bunch of 3-3s three with Trigger our Bishop of Wings. Actually insane. Super strong there. Totally good. But the ability to make a Platinum Angel works with our good friend Faceless Haven Abe. You see, Faceless Haven is all creature types. So we activate our Faceless Haven, and then we put this on there, and now, unless they can blow up our Faceless Haven, we cannot lose the game. And that I am very much interested in, in a deck that also does a very good job of not dying and clogging the board. So, I think Exalted, uh, the Book of Exalted Deeds, which is a terrible name, I can't remember it. It's actually super sick, but I'm just mad because I can't remember it. I think this card has actual potential. I think it's going to be very good, and it's very sweet. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think there's also, like, in people who like to play their Johnny's Pride Mate, you know, Soul Sisters deck, where this card being three white blips on a permanent that sits around and pays you off for gaining, you know, a little bit of life every turn, uh, is, is pretty powerful, too. I could definitely see it being a player in Historic. I just like how much, like, I can see the value of like, oh, I now have a Platinum Angel on one of my, like, one of my creatures now Platinum Angel. You put it on your worst or least important Angel, and then suddenly your board gets even more difficult to deal with, because, like, a lot of the times you'll see, like, oh, this Resplendent Archangel is what's going to be actually taking over the game, and that's what's important, but if, you know, I make my Youthful Angel, right, that's the two drop one three. Youthful Valkyrie also say that I can't lose the game. Now I have to kill what is my most boring creature uh, just to, like, you know, be able to win the game. So that's, like, a, a that is another roadblock. And I could just be using that ability, not because I, like, need to hold off death, but maybe I'm just kind of, like, pumping the brakes because I've drawn multiples of my legendary artifact, and I just want to, like, you know, develop my board in a different way this turn. Uh, like, it, it, the fact it's a legendary artifact with an outlet to it, unlike the uh, the black counterpart, which kind of requires a lot of setup. Mm-hmm. Um, this one does not. This one's just so easy to so easy to to cash in and play your second, which I think is just really awesome for for big legendary artifacts like this that uh, you know have a big importance on the game. I agree. What are, what's your first uh, favorite? Uh, my first favorite is the Monk class. And Ooh. classes are a new type of card similar to sagas uh, in like format and templating, uh, but a little different. So we'll, we'll, we'll go through this 
there's there's 12 of them in the set uh five multicolored ones and then uh seven monocolored ones with two green and two white among those uh but uh monk class is an enchantment for white blue and it starts on level one with the ability the second spell you cast each turn costs one colorless or one generic mana less to cast uh you can pay white blue to level up your class to level two so that means that now it has the level one ability and the level two ability the level two ability on monk classes uh when it becomes level two return up to one target non-land permanent to its owner's hand already this is like when i'm reading this is already powerful because it's going to be able to be pushing itself forward like like leveling it up kind of doesn't take away from the amount of time you're spending to develop this card because it's just going to generate time by putting a creature back or a planeswalker back in your opponent's hand forcing to spend mana on again and the third level is uh one white blue to level two and that says at the beginning of your upkeep exile the top card of your library for as long as it remains exiled it has you may cast this card from exile as long as you've cast another spell this turn so uh, you know, the, the end goal here for the monk class is that, you know, you're just casting two spells a turn, or trying to cast two spells a turn. Uh, once you're on level three, now so long as you can start by casting one card, you get to cast all of the other spells you're flipping off the top. So, like, you can really snowball and make sure you're, you're card advantaging your opponent out. And it kind of does it in a way that promotes you to be actually casting your spells as opposed to normally, like, card advantage in traditional control decks where you're just trying to expend resources to deny your opponent and then use single or repeated effects to like you know refill and and be able to eventually drown them in in those cards this one requires you to be like applying some amount of pressure or just doing something more than spinning your wheels to be getting actual value out of it uh but it's also just one of the cooler card advantage E enchantments and that's also like an answer to something like a soft answer by being a bounce spell and generate a little more mana in these decks um, even just virtually it's a card that I think is like pretty sick and I, I I don't know I'm just excited to hopefully get a chance to play with it maybe in limited or you know just see like if, if it can do anything uh, I'm with you I think it's sick the, the coolest thing I've heard about the class spells Abe, I don't know if you've heard this is you, there's like a, some people want to try a new commander variant where you build your deck around the class spells. So you have to build with like monks and stuff, but your class spell is your commander. Oh, that sounds sick. Yeah, I think I think that's really cool. Yeah, that 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 was a super like I just saw that on Twitter. And I was like, that's just a great idea. Like even as a one or two off thing you do as a couple friends, like sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, for all your you competitive, your you see C E D H right? Competitive, yeah, competitive class E D H. Gamers out there, Druid class is going to be the best one. CC you know, class, yeah. <laughs> like, it's going to be so good. Uh, but, you know, that's that's for another podcast. Uh, my other favorite card from this set is actually just the uh, the Black Planeswalker, Walth Spider Queen. Uh, it's three black black, a four loyalty Planeswalker with whenever a creature you control dies, put a loyalty counter on Walth Spider Queen. And its loyalty abilities are zero. You draw a card and lose a life. Minus three, create two, two, one black spider creature tokens with menace and reach. And it has a minus eight where you get an emblem. 
with whenever an opponent is dealt combat damage by one or more creatures you control, if that player lost less than eight life this turn, they lose life equal to the difference. So, you know, it's just kind of your... It, it's just refreshing to me to see a classic, uh, you know, five mana, draw some cards, or, like, you know, generate some marginal value on the board elsewhere kind of card. It kind of feels like Obnixilis from, uh, from Battle for Zendikar in that way, Obnixilis Reignited. Just, like, really... Yeah, I don't want to say bland because I think the card is actually really cool and then it has the like the incentive for you to be playing to the board and it itself creates creatures that defend it for minus three that gives it two back so that I could like do that twice um, or whatever like the card plays differently than just a you know plus one draw a card minus three kill a thing minus whatever ultimate um, and the fact that a the ultimate doesn't even seem that game winning but B, like, it's a much bigger value card than anything else. And I think that it's, like, a really good step for Planeswalkers to be going in, especially after, like, after the years of War of the Spark being legal. I, I don't ever want to see a cheap Planeswalker again, man. They're so exhausting. Funny. I felt that way about um, the Planeswalkers from Strixhaven 2, is that they definitely seemed like they were much more balanced around a new understanding of what they wanted Planeswalkers to be in Magic, and I'm really liking the direction of them, so this is one of my favorite designs. I agree. I think it's super cool, and it's very unique and does ask a lot of you, and I, I like cards that are like, hey, here's this thing. It kind of plays like this. Get the joke with the minus, and then it, that will plus me back up some. But also like, hey, do you want to play this? Then like Nantuka husk away your board and then ult me? Like You can do that too. I think that's really exciting. Um, and I, I like the Spider Queen a lot. It was cool that she's like your you get one for pre-ordering on Arena. Like the new set. That's a cool bonus yeah. one to have. Next up are our hopefuls. So hopefuls are cards that we think are going to be kind of good and have a real chance to kind of make it there, but we're not 100% sure. There's some stuff that kind of needs to break the right way, and so these are ones that are really hopeful will become players or think have a good chance to become players. And my first one is Wizard Spellbook. So it's five blue blue for an artifact that has tap, Exile target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard. Roll a d20. Activate only as a sorcery. Then if you roll a 1 through a 9, you copy that card and you may cast the copy. So you still have to spend mana on the copy, but hey, you get to re recast you know, your draw spell, your kill spell, whatever. 10 through 19 is copy that card and you may cast that card by paying 1 rather than paying its mana cost. So most of the time you're going to be spending 1 on some really big spell or really nice spell. That's a great thing to do. And 20 is copy each card exiled with the wizard spellbook. You may cast any number of those copies without paying their mana cost. So I mentioned earlier how most of the time we're going to roll a d20 card and they do the same thing every time. This card, I think, is an example of that not being so true um, in the fact that the two later modes, I think, are much stronger than the, the early modes. And the, specifically the last mode, if you're able to activate the spellbook for a couple turns in a row probably just becomes like a mystics mastery and just kind of kills them that all being said wizard spellbook i think has a lot of real potential with cards like magma opus magma opus gets you towards this a little sooner and i think saltile ultimatum actually might like having a card like wizard spellbook to go get and then recast your shadows verdict or your draw spell or you know if they counter your ultimatum i believe it still goes to the graveyard so you could cast that again and I think that's really strong. So I think the Wizards Public has a chance, but it is a seven mana artifact. 
And so uh, it doesn't have any cost in mana for itself to activate, which seems a little weird and a little risky a little bit. I think the initial upfront cost and having to pay some amount most of the time for the spells is really strong. Um, I think it has a, a real chance to get there, but does need a little bit of help. Yeah, it seems really cool in the, like, uh, there's that Sultai Ultimatum Turns deck that mm. was uh, that was in Historic for a bit, where, uh, you know, you'd, like, Spellbook, or, yeah, you could go, like, Spellbook, the... Like, somewhere in your chain after you, like, Final Parting and have your Sphinx or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. To, uh, to, like, set up a loop. But it... I think it have to be a wild world where seven man artifacts are... That you likely can't immediately value off of unless you're... Like, if you call it eight mana, because half the time you're going to cast your spell for free or for one. Mm-hmm. So you want to be able to get the card immediately out of it. Uh, you know. It's still kind of difficult for me to see a world where this card is a, a real player, but... Uh, I don't a, know, man. It's a big ask. Roll, you gotta roll the dice. You do. Maybe a control finisher. If we keep powering things down, you could probably protect that like the old days. Yeah, I mean, I was a believer in Midnight Clock, so I can't I can't knock you. These two, Those two cards play great together, right? I shuffle Dude. my graveyard away with Midnight Clock. I never have one again. I've drawn seven cards, but I was able to ramp my spellbook sooner. Yeah, they really play great together. Yeah, sure. that was I was on the right busted Eldrain card with that one. You somehow landed on the only not one. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Ebon Death Dracolich is my other card. It's two black black for a legendary creature, Zombie Dragon, with flash flying, and this creature enters the battlefield tapped. And you may cast this card from your graveyard if a creature not named Ebon Dragonlich died this turn. It's a 5-2. So four mana, five, two, flash, ETB tap, and if you didn't play one of these this turn, cast it again from your graveyard, and thanks to flash, I'm sorry, if it wanted to die this turn, uh, you can cast it in your graveyard. So if your opponent kills it on their turn to be mana efficient and you have mana up, you can bring it back on their turn. You can just have this thing that comes back over and over and over again. And I think once, like, with stop in the format, it's very hard for this card to be good. Maybe it has a chance. I think with Stomp gone and I'm not knowing what's in Innistrad, this card has a real chance to take over. Yeah, I I thought this was a card that I might have put in hit uh, personally because it just seemed like such a powerful like single card to draw. It's just a lot of value on its own. Like I always say, like flash cards are better than they look, and you know this is a this is a very good flash card. It presents a lot of power. Uh, and and you don't mind attacking it and and trading it down, but it also is flying, so like it's just kind of fragile for removal and hard to trade down with because you know there's not many people just playing wind drakes in standard or whatever, so it's it's going to likely have a have a pretty clean attack, uh, and then you know if you're playing a mid range deck with some heartless acts or whatever and you're leaving your mana up, then you can kill their creature and return yours or you know if you trade off creatures in combat on a later turn you're gonna get an ebb and death out of it so yeah i think this card's really good there's not a lot to say about it other than that it has flash and is recursive so it you know obviously has to be at least a little good so agreed let's see what you got for your two uh my two were the hall of the storm giants 
which is the blue part of the cycle of creature lands. Uh, which, if you don't know, there's a, a cycle of creature lands in the set that each tap for their corresponding color and enter the battlefield untapped if it is your first or second land. That's as if you control two or more other lands. Enter the battlefield taps. But this one taps for a blue, and for five and a blue, until end of turn, it becomes a 7-7 seven, seven blue giant creature with ward three until end of turn, and it is still a land. Uh, this just seems like probably one of the better control finishers that exists for most blue decks right now. And I think that it, in standard, if there's a long, slow game blue deck, like we saw... What was the name of it? The uh, the one from Zendikar. You paid four to put two counters on it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the name of it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Everyone knows the card I'm talking about. You don't got to worry about the fact that I'm drawing a blank. Uh, but yeah, like that was Crawling Barons. Thank you. Yeah, so so Crawling Barons was a card that, like, you know, blew back control, played all its mana up, and kind of had the game locked up, and then start paying mana into putting enough counters on it to like kill you in one or two shots this thing comes down and is already going to kill you in one or two shots like a, a seven seven is huge and the fact that it's it's got ward three so you need to leave up a lot of mana if you're hoping to interact with it and your opponent doesn't even have to activate it into a ton of mana meaning that they can just tax you five or six mana in the mid to late game uh for for you to like get through it is just really good, and it's just such low deck building cost because it's also a blue source, so your mana doesn't have to be awkward. Uh, I, I think that all of the creature lands obviously have a chance and a place, although I think the more aggressive ones have a harder time because of the existence of Faceless Haven, where there's going to have to be like a real reason that you want either more of these creature lands or uh, you don't want to be playing snow things. Um, like, without that, it seems like, you know, Mono White and Mono Red probably aren't going to want too many copies of theirs because, you know, Face Saving is just so good. But uh, I think the control decks, on the other hand, like, really do want cards like this, and especially the ones that don't want anything to do with Snowlands in the first place, and they want their mana to be a bit better with more pathways and such. So, like, your multicolor control decks care a lot about this thing being a blue source and being uh, a late game threat. So I'm hoping that this one gets season play. I, I like it when I get to play a nice little no win con control deck. But you have a win con. It's the Hall of the Storm Giants. Yeah, everyone laughs at me for playing Celestial Colonnades sometimes too. But uh, <laughs> you know, that one's never a win con. This one is. Curious. Yeah, this one hasn't proven it's not yet. That's the difference. <laughs> this one might be the <laughs> one. <laughs> and especially with like uh, castles rotating, Castle Mantra and Castle Ardenvale, a couple of these making your way into their their way into your two color control deck mana bases is gonna be nice. So agreed. Uh, and then my other one was Dungeon Crawler. Dungeon Crawler is a very kind of innocuous card. It's a two one for a single black that enters the battlefield tapped. It is a zombie. Uh and it says whenever you complete a dungeon, you may return dungeon crawler from your graveyard to your hand. So if you're playing a bunch of uh, these venture into the dungeon cards and you get to complete a dungeon and they've already killed your dungeon crawler or you've discarded it or milled it over you just get to pick it right back up and I think it would be the biggest reason I'm hopeful for this card is that I think it would be really really cool to see enough 
of like an aggressive venturing shell to exist that you know we could get to see uh one of these cards that's just so directly tied to having a ceiling attached to to the dungeons as cards and venturing as a mechanic that it's just playable uh because you know on raid it's fine but the upside makes it good and uh if if that's a thing that's happening in standard that people are actually venturing i, I think that'd be really cool i'm with you yeah i think that'd be cool i think if this put it on the battlefield it would definitely see play but uh, i agree i hope there's no and stuff- because it's only because it's only a two one i think like for one it, it probably doesn't make that much of a difference for hand versus play because it's a cheap card but that's fair well it, I, it matters i guess on when you can complete the dungeon because if you could do it at instant speed it would matter but i guess if not, oh yeah but yeah there's like the three mana five five card that's like you venture into a specific dungeon and once you beat uh that dungeon this stays in play otherwise bounce it into your hand so there, there might be something to like a, a mono black like adventurer deck i don't know what we yeah i that. think it's the the tomb of annihilation which is the fastest adventure you, the fastest venture you could complete best yep. dungeon you could blaze through yeah i'm excited uh, i don't know i i think that stuff all seems really strong for limited this set seems like it's gonna be super fun i can't wait to draft it not something i say very rare very often but uh yeah i, I think it's super cool um, uh, so, so how about the good stuff, Mason? How about how about we finally give the people they're asking for the hits, just the goods? I gotta say, uh, going into this, I mentioned how you know, Flame Skull I thought could have been a hit, um, and Ebon Death could have been a hit. Besides those, I didn't see that many myself. I see you have one on your list that probably could be in there for sure. But today, the day we're recording this, the last day, the day they dropped the full set, I think two of the best cards in the set were dropped. Um, in fact, like there, there were enough cool cards and good cards dropped today that I actually pre-ordered the set, which I wasn't going to do originally on Arena. And the first is Loyal Hound. So this is the hits, the cards we think are going to definitely make an impact. Loyal Hound is one in a white for a creature dog. Has Vigilance. And when it enters the battlefield, if your opponent controls more lands than you search the library for a basic planes, put that on the battlefield tapped. Then shuffle your library into a 3-1. So it's very much like Knight of the Reliquary. Unlike Knight of the Reliquary, it does not allow you to double spell on, you know, turn three. You mean Knight of the White Orchid? That's what I meant. Sorry. Knight of the White Orchid. Um, thank you. But yeah, unlike that card, you can't double spell by playing it and using the mana that it has to cast a spell or an additional land drop. But it still gets you that mana, and I think that's really important for a few reasons. One, our current white decks are pretty mana heavy. They require having a lot of three drops and making sure you have that mana is good. And the decks are really relying on Faceless Haven. So being able to consistently activate your Faceless Haven, activate it a turn sooner. This is a 3-1. That's a 4-3. That's a really big oomph on the next turn, like 7 damage. And in some matchups, you really need to put a lot of pressure on them and force them to wipe you. And I think the Loyal Hound lets you do that. And I think this card's just very, very good. Um, I think White Orchid is stronger in the abstract but maybe contextually this one just i'd be surprised if this card just does not see a bunch of play i think it is very good for white aggressive decks i think it opens the door for things like showdown the skull to maybe finally have their moment and also it's so good in the winota decks i think i i I think it has a real (laughs) chance i didn't even put it in my winota deck for my article because that time it passed by the time i kind of figured it out but i was like wow this is like something i can play on my turn three 
grab a planes and play like my, you know, snarl, whatever tapped and then develop my Winota on the next turn, you know, like yeah. three land Winota hands are just the thing you get to more easily keep. And I think the loyal Warhound is so good. Yeah. When you're on the draw, being able to say that like, okay, I'm on the draw, but I can now present a turn three Winota is huge. Like ramping, ramping to four when there's huge impactful four drops in the format is, is really big. And I think that it's, it's a good card to have that like opens the door for, uh, for white creature decks to kind of be, especially the aggressive decks to be more mid rangey in creature matchups, like being able to not necessarily just be behind because they don't win the die roll in a matchup that's all about attacking and blocking, but having a card that on the draw is inherently defensive because like the three one is just better at blocking bigger things than isn't attacking to smaller things. Um, but also just giving you the mana to to play two spells before your opponent can, or at least at the same pacing your opponent can to keep up. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, obviously a home run home run design. The card is the the closest card to it saw a lot of play each time it was in the format. And I think that uh I think this will not be very different. I think that you know, getting getting a a ramping growth on your three one half the time, half the games you play where you have in your opener, is uh, just really good. <laughs> yeah, and any game where you can sequence it to like help you out, like if you went Luminarch Aspirin, for example, on two instead, and like buffed your one or maybe even buffed itself, then they play their turn three and they hit their land drop, and then you get to play this, you know, and like maybe develop like a selfless savior or something where. Heck, don't even do anything else. But now the next turn you have guaranteed four, maybe even five mana. That's really huge. I talked about Faceless Haven. It animating, attacking, and then playing something post-combat. That's so big, too. So, And the 3-1 body, I think it's just very good. Um, and helps these kind of aggressive decks get the job done. Dragon's Fire is the next one. I think this card's really great. It's one red for an instant. As an additional cost to cast this spell... You may, so you don't actually have to do this to cast it, which I saw some confusion about today, but you may reveal a dragon from your hand or choose a dragon you control. If you do not reveal a dragon or choose a dragon, this does three damage to target creature or planeswalker. So nice little lightning strike situation we got going on there. If you revealed a dragon or chose a dragon though, instead deal damage equal to its power to target creature uh, or planeswalker instead. Wow. Like, I'm sorry. It's it's yeah, only it's, it's only it's, it's only the creature on the second half there. I mis I misread it, but um, still, it, your dragon deck like combat draconic or Solomar scorn and pioneer. I think this card just like in a the blue red dragon deck that we've seen in standard already with uh, Galzeth Prismari. Uh, that obviously doesn't trigger this in that way very helpfully, uh, barring some sort of other things going on. But Goldspan Dragon allows you just to for something, and there's. Illiseth, which is the blue dragon, I believe that's how you say it, but basically it's like an Ojatide type card, and that's a five power yeah. thing. And so you can actually kill a lot of really big things with your dragons, and dragons got enough support that I think there's a real chance for those dragon cards to make it, and Dragon's Fire was one of them. Yeah, like imagine just being some red-black mid-range deck, and now you can just show them your Evan death as you kill their creature, and then, you know. They just die, they, yeah. Like, yeah. Just this, it's it's already good enough to have these like two mana deal three to a creatures like scorching dragon fire isn't anything to write home about really there are fire prop fire prophecy has a lot to write home about that card just does a lot put in getting the cycle card out of your hand is really strong but 
you know, uh, Dragon's Fire being able to do the same kind of thing, uh, but scaling up to kill bigger creatures if you're a deck that plays the bigger creatures yourself. Uh, you know, it's it's just a, a really solid upside on what is a, a really solid common. I think that's a that's a good choice. So good in the Goldspan Dragon mirrors as well. Like your Goldspan kills their Goldspan, and it does it. Yeah, as long as you have something, and as long as you have a dragon in in hand or in play, you have a two mana removal spell. You can actually put in your deck that kills another dragon. Yeah, that's that's pretty huge. Yeah, imagine like I play my Goldspan first, attack and pass. You try to move to combat, and I like pop my treasure, kill yours. That's that's really big. Like, is your opponent gonna instead of playing the Goldspan Dragon guarantee kill yours? They kind of have to make that read in that choice. And if they choose wrong, we're talking potentially game-ending moments here. So yeah, yeah, I, I think it's really good. I think those two cards are actually very very strong, and we'll definitely see play. What are your two hits? So my hits are Portable Hole first and foremost, uh, which is single white when Portable Hole. Enters the battlefield, exile target non-land permanent and opponent controls with mana value two or less until portable hole leaves the battlefield. Uh, which is, you know, kind of when you look at it, it's just like, oh, it's glass casket, but it's cheaper, but it doesn't hit threes. But the fact that it hits any non-land permanent mana value two or less means it's actually just like the best like fatal push you could have in standard. Maybe not the best fatal push, but like Prismatic ending has been all over modern recently, and prismatic ending is this you know card? a lot of the time yeah it's just it's you know white X converge so you, and you exile a thing with CMC or with a mana value less than or equal to the number of man like the colors of mana you put into that card so you know for two mana you can get rid of Renin six permanently for three mana you can get rid of a blood moon for one mana you can get rid of an amulet of vigor or ragavan this card does half of those things I was saying. It doesn't hit the three mana spells, but it always costs one mana, and it, like, it's just the kind of card that I think white has needed in, like, the modern era outside of maybe exactly Path to Exile existing. But even then, that's, like, kind of punishing early game, where it, it is just an unconditional removal spell for things that are happening in the beginning of the game. Uh, so, like, if you're... You know, if you're a blue-white control deck in Pioneer, which is where I think about this card the most, because when I would play early in Pioneer's days, I played a lot of, like, uh, blue-white flash decks with, like, Spellqueller and Avacyn. I was, like, trying things out um, back when Smuggler's Copter was legal. But, uh, like, we could never beat a Mana Dork to save our life because we had no way to kill it unless we were on the play and played a, a Walking Ballista on turn two and then shot their, like, Landor Elves. But if we couldn't do that, we were just like guaranteed to start the game on the draw. And if they won the won the die roll, we were just doubly on the draw. Like they would just always have one of their eight dorks, and then, like, you know, the next turn play something big, and I would be sitting there like, oh well, I played one of my no one drops or like Draven Inspector or something, and now you have an Oko. It's like, well, that's not fair. So, uh, you know, Portable Hole I think really closes up a gap in the options available to white in, in a range of things that matter a lot in older formats and matter a lot in standard too. I think that right now, a lot of things are about three drops, but you know, this gives a much more solid answer to a bunch of the rogue creatures for decks that like value the efficiency. Um, and also just being a cheap artifact answer to any non-land permanent means you could like 
were for it or uh you know go tutor for it with trinket mage or whatever it is you want to do to, to be able to find your answer this card just i feel like slots in, in a lot of places just a really good roll flow roll filler i agree i think this card is great just a really strong card not much to say. I, I, it's just yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing about a hit is that sometimes it's just efficient removal. You know, it's just like it, it's it's an efficient answer that does a little more than it says, which I think is awesome. The other hit that I have, this one might I might end up getting burned by this, but I, I believe in it is uh, the Ranger class, which uh, we explained what the classes were with the monk class. But this one, the first level, is when it enters the battlefield, you create a two-two green wolf creature token, and to cast it, it costs one and a green. So. You know, it at the very least, it's Grizzly Bears. It makes a token when it enters the battlefield. And then you can pay one and a green to put it to level two, which is whenever you attack, put a plus one, plus one counter on target attacking creature. So you can, you know, invest two mana, and then rather than playing a creature or another enchantment or whatever, you can set yourself up to be growing the creatures you're attacking with. Uh, and then for four mana, three and a green, you can take it from level two to level three, which allows you to look at the top card of your library at any time and cast creature spells from the top of your library. Uh, so this is kind of like... I don't know. It's it's like you can spend a total of six mana for it to become like a Vivian uh, for my Coria, where you're able to cast the creatures off the top and it kind of like made some bodies and is leaving some, some traction around. But I think that... Like... As far as threats go, especially as things power down, you're just getting a lot for this card in ways that you're able to spend your mana in like a multitude of ways rather than having to be like, you know, only have one game plan. Like we saw with adventure cards, just how good it is to have your creatures attached to spells. And in this case, like Ranger class is kind of like an adventure creature or like a learn card in the sense where it's a two mana two two that also draws these two enchantments that you can like level into it. Uh, and you know, like mono green aggro could be interested in a card like this because it allows them to not have to play so hard into answers like extinction event or shadows verdict. If they don't want to, they can just spend their mana, you know, leveling this card or, uh, or, you know, on, on the, third level they can just start casting the creatures off the top of their library which is you know just actual card advantage so I, I think that it's a card that you know looks a little I think it looks good when you look at it like it's the floor is really like high it, it's just a, a grizzly bear with some upside but I think that that upside is very real and I think that in a world where we're seeing things power down a lot over the last few sets um, like the those things start to become more and more valuable and, yeah. and this one will outperform. I agree. It's also nice with Yorion. Um, obviously, don't invest the mana if you plan to blink it pretty soon. But another thing for those sort of style of decks that are looking to be more creature-based, um, you can blink that. And yeah, I, I think Ranger class is very strong. Um, it works very well with some of the other good green cards like Werewolf Pack Leader that are in the set when it comes to like up and down and reaching pack tactics, which is a, a evergreen keyword in the set. So... Or I should say, uh, continuous keyword in the set, and yeah, I think Ranger Class is just good, it's just strong. Like, yeah, it's just you know, it just does the thing that it says it does. It's like, you know, Omen of Omen of the Sun was like a, a standard like staple playable for a while. I don't see why Ranger Class couldn't be on kind of the other end of the other end of the ball there. Yep, big agree. 
Well, thank you all so much for hanging out with us on this episode of Constructed Criticism for the Forgotten Realms set review. Get excited to play it this Thursday at the time of this recording on Arena already. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. <laughs> you sound fatigued by these sets already, Mason. <laughs> uh, there are two Innistrad sets coming out within a month and a half of each other in a month and a half from now, roughly. I guess it's a little at two months, but basically... And what a time I'm, to be alive. I am tired. <laughs> I'm an old man. I need the break. <laughs> but you know what? I'll say this. When B, when Zendikar was around for three months at the beginning of the year, I was dying for a set. And I just, I'm the monkey <laughs> paw curled. It curled on me. But yeah, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. And we'll see you all next week for another episode. <laughs>